Good morning, you're very welcome to the show. And uh, before we meet our panel and dissect the papers, let's have a look at the front pages. So the Sunday Independent is leading on Department in Private Briefing for TV's Bannon. And uh, that is, uh, as they say in the first line here, celebrity architect Dermot Bannon received a private briefing from Housing Minister Dara O'Brien's department about a government grant which was repeatedly referenced on RTE's Room to Improve last weekend. The Business Post IDA boss reveals Sinn Féin plans to woo US firms on corporate tax. So Sinn Féin has made it clear to top multinationals that it has no issue with Ireland's corporate tax rate, will not raise it if elected. And that's according to Fergal O'Rourke, who is the new chairman of IDA Ireland. It does go on in the piece to to mention that... um, Sinn Féin is adamantly sticking to uh, higher uh, taxes for higher earners and that a lot of the, the people believe that could affect um, uh, FDI companies coming into Ireland. Uh, the Sunday Times, uh, coalition tackles immigration fears in plan for public. Taoiseach admits issue is likely to dominate next election. So the government is to roll out a new robust strategy to inform the public about immigration as tensions surrounding the issue rise across the country. And you will have seen that there's there's our facts and figures being pumped out in the last uh, 24, 48 hours. Uh, the Taoiseach also has a piece in the Sunday Independent today. So obviously the government is now... Uh, uh, endeavouring to get control of this narrative. The uh, Irish Mail on Sunday, house targets will increase. So uh, they have the Taoiseach saying that 38,000 houses will be built this year. I think that's an increase of 5,000 on the previous target. But they're saying despite industry capacity for 60,000. And they have the uh, Construction Industry Federation saying that 60,000 is what is required and that it is achievable. And I suppose this is part of I think the um, building industry is looking at that it's going to be pivoting more towards residential as the uh, as the office market is kind of tanking uh, a little bit and that there could be uh, capacity to start building more houses, which the SRI were also suggesting would be a good idea during the week. Um, the MER has Conor McGregor giving uh, 50000 to a fund set up in the memory of Ashling Murphy. The Sunday World has uh, a former, uh, well, a Kinahan gun, gun runner uh, who is now out of prison, Jonathan Harding, walking his dog. And the Irish Sun on Sunday has, I had to tell Kyle's wife the truth, and this is the shenanigans between model Lauren Goodman and uh, Kyle Walker, the Manchester City footballer, which has been um, convulsing uh, the, the British tabloids all week. The, 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 uh, his his uh, profligate parenting skills. Uh, now, our panel today, uh, Brenda Powers, a columnist at the Irish Daily Mail and the Sunday Times. Donico Bacon is Professor of International Relations at the School of Law and Government at DCU. Jack Horgan Jones is Political Correspondent with the Irish Times. And Aideen Hayden is a housing expert and the former chair of Threshold. Good morning, everyone. Morning. 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 Um, so, look, will we start with, uh, with migration, which is the, uh, the ongoing conversation where the energy appears to be at a lot of the time? Jack, um, the front page of the Sunday Times coalition tackles immigration fears and plan for um, for public. Sorry, for public in plan for public. Okay, public nothing. Um, so uh, there, there's a lot of energy coming from the government now around starting to tell us more about this. Yeah. Yeah. So there's going to be all sorts of bells and whistles on this if you read the copy. Um, you know, a new a new section of the government website, basically kind of cleaning up their act on communication and doing a better job of telling the story of Ireland's immigration policy. And um, the problem with this, to a certain extent, is that uh, really horses and stable doors come to mind. Um, and the idea that the only issue with how immigration and integration is playing out in this country is a, com- is a communications one. I think is is a bit of a fallacy, to be frank. Um, Misinformation does appear to it be does, an issue, and that's absolutely. And they're trying to replace that yes, with and that, information. Yes, and, and that that the role of misinformation, disinformation, uh, the the bad actors who who spread it shouldn't be diminished in any way, shape, or form. But I think that the the more fundamental problem here is that the policy, a coherent policy, 
doesn't underpin the communications effort. And I think that that is kind of what they need to address rather than just telling the story better. So yes, anything that pushes back against misinformation uh, and misinformation is spreading wildly around, I think, nearly all the protests that we've seen up and down the country. But to think it's only uh, a communications failure, to think that if they were just to explain themselves better, everything would be okay, I think is a little bit misleading. No, there is also a plan for these. I think, is it four huge reception centres, which I, I, I presume the idea is that when they are bought, I think they seem to be saying they'll buy places, but that the idea would be that that might get us away from uh, things like what, what's happening in Ross Cray and this sudden turnaround in local buildings. Yeah, so what, what's going to happen effectively is uh, the Integration Minister, Roderick O'Gorman, is going to bring a new plan to Cabinet. He flagged this with the Irish Times and others before Christmas. Um, basically, what they're trying to do is kind of salvage the white paper on direct provision that was written in 2021 that basically was a roadmap for abolishing direct provision, which was a big goal of the Greens entering government. Now, that has been totally uh, thrown off track by the the sheer weight of numbers that are coming and the scale of the migration crisis that the state is facing. So I think what they're going to do is kind of try and adapt the parts of that that can be adapted to the current uh, policy challenge that they're facing. And the big one, the kind of headline one, is uh, making good with one of the main recommendations of the White Paper, which is to get rid of the privatised system of direct provision, which has kind of metastasized into the privatized system of uh, accommodating nearly 100,000 people up and down the country uh, in private sector settings, okay. basically any, anywhere that they can find and replace it with these larger centers. Now, you know, this would seem to be the, the kernel of a better policy, but it does seem to be some ways off as well. I mean, this is very much a problem that is having huge political ramifications in the here and now. Um, and it's not something that I think is going to be solved by this new policy today, tomorrow or next week. So while it's okay. welcome, I think that, you know, they're thinking more strategically. I think that that doesn't lessen the very immediate and real challenge from what we're seeing up and in the country. Yeah. Brenda, you were looking at this, too. Yes. Also, I was uh, I was just going to refer to the, to the, the, the observations of Brendan O'Leary, Lauder, professor, professor of political science. Sorry, at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, and he is—he's saying what I think a lot of people. This is in the, it's in the Sunday Times Sunday piece Times, as well, yeah. uh, to the effect that there is a vacuum here for, well, as he calls it, a a, a strong or a, a right-wing populist party. To, to, to sort of channel the frustration of the housing crisis and over immigration and, and exploit demogra- demagogic, demagogic arguments saying Ireland is full and, and, and that there is, that there is a, 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 I suppose, a, a sort of a, a niche there for the emergence of some figure to galvanise all of this and that while that has not happened so, in Ireland yeah, so it ha- far... It hasn't. Like, it hasn't and, happened in Ireland so far, but, but that, that, you know, we shouldn't be complacent about that. Yeah, there is OK. Donica? Well, on the, on the place for... Um a party devoted to the populist right. I mean, the experience in Ireland and I think in other countries has been that often the far right parties by themselves don't do electorally well. That's certainly the case in Ireland. There's a plethora of parties out there all representing the far right and they'd be lucky to get a few hundred votes on a good day. Um, the problem, as we've seen in our nearest neighbour, Britain, is when the the issue becomes so pronounced that they are adopted by the mainstream parties mm. and they simply just take, they steal their their clothes, their policy clothes. And that, that we've seen that in Britain with the mainstreaming now of an anti... And do you think there's a, is there a danger of that here? I mean, the, the, the main parties have been largely really holding a, a firm line on this, haven't they? Yeah, they have. Um, of, of course, you can't be complacent. Uh, this has happened in so many other parts of Europe um, uh, that, that there's, there's no reason to think that Ireland can, can remain immune from it. I mean, populism is something that is is developing throughout the Western world. We see it with Trump as well in the US and the elections, of course, coming up this year. And, you know, it's 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 facilitated as well by social media, uh, this notion that there's kind of an elite out there which is kind of conspiring against the majority of people. So all these populist parties, you know, they tend to to, to profess themselves as representing the, the common person and listening to their concerns and coming up with very simple solutions. Uh, usually, of course, getting rid of foreigners is one of them. So, you know, so, you know, making America great again, you 
you know, build that wall, all that kind of, you know, simple stuff, the, the 350 million in the NHS that we saw on the, the, the back of the bus in Britain, it's or drain that swamp, all these kind of very simple slogans that are going to like a panacea, you know, cure all the ills, the ills you cannot avoid. This is the thing. I mean, like there are problems uh, in, in every society, there are problems in our society, but there is a, you can see it throughout Europe. We're going to have elections in Europe in June uh, for the European Parliament and there, there, there is predicted to be going a surge to the to the right and uh, you know we've seen alternative for Deutschland and Germany we see Le Pen I mean that's why Macron changed his cabinet during the last week because he's worried about Le Pen winning uh, the, the, the next election so and the problem is in, in Just democracies Just before I move on to Aideen yeah. I, I did have this moment of clarity when I saw Georgia Maloney down at uh, COP talking about how we need to save the planet and everything and you do realise once she got in like she suddenly became a very reasonable individual didn't she so is is, is there a kind of a real politique to this as well which is that as Pat Rabbit might say well those are the kind of things you say in an election campaign but when people actually are running a country they calm down it depends on how strong the checks and balances are in different countries, um, and each each country has a different situation. But like a country like Hungary, for example, it's very disturbing. Kind of a lot of the elements there, this kind of ethno nationalism, uh, you know, anti EU rhetoric as well. And and you know, you just need a kind of a critical mass of countries because the EU, of course, is based on consensus. It's it's it, it it can be beholden to one or two, you know, governments that are elected once but elected on a mandate, which is kind of you know okay. anti. Anti kind of your you remain, you remain vulnerable to the right as well. Even if you're your right wing candidate mainstreams in government, I mean Salvini is in government with uh, with Giorgia Maloney, but is kind of courting that more right wing um, that more right wing vote. So like it's not as if it just kind of totally erases it. You know, it just kind of changes it a little bit. Yeah, Aideen. Yeah, no. I mean, I just think Ireland is coming very late to this. You know, I mean, a lot of this debate was happening in countries like Greece and Italy back in 2014, for example, when the major refugee crisis coming from Syria was coming into Europe. Um, I think Ireland has been very, very, very slow to face up to the realities of what it's, what's in front of it in the longer run uh, with climate change, desertification, unrest around the globe and so on. And um, I think at the end of the day, uh, we do need to have a, a very serious national debate on this. Um, you know, the rhetoric around, you know, Ireland for the Irish, look after your own first, particularly on issues like housing. Um, you know, at the end of the day, there may be, I suppose, small victories for individual communities who maybe manage to prevent a, a centre coming to their particular town. But in the longer run, you know, it is something that we are going to have to accept um, either individually as a country or part of a European response. And I would prefer to see this as part of a European cohesive response. And I think we, that's, we that's very much to what, what to the government are saying as well. We are going to have a strategy around this. Yeah. You know, it, it, Listen, it is something it, we need to be thinking about in terms of our own sense of our own identity. Other countries have come to this table before us. Germany, for the sake of argument, took in one million Syrian uh, refugees, for example, absorbed them into their culture without, you know, necessarily having... Because they wanted younger, younger workers. Yes, and that was part yeah. of it as well. Yeah. And we have a major problem in Ireland with uh, labour force as well. You know, we should be paying a lot more attention to the positives that there could be for this country. And I take your point, Jack, about direct provision reform. But really, that's something that's been ongoing now since, you know, 2013. We haven't got anywhere with it. I wonder, Brenda, if... When you when when the government do put out the numbers there, and you see that um, actually, it, like okay, it's gone up a lot in a few years, but actually, it didn't explode last year. You're talking about what fourteen, fifteen thousand uh, tops. Is the hundred thousand Ukrainians in the mix something that has created ma- made the fifteen thousand into more of an issue? Would we possibly be handling fifteen thousand a year if that is the norm for the future now? Would well, we, we possibly I mean, be handling that resource wise and everything else? If of, of course we could. I mean, I, when, when you consider that it was thirteen, thirteen, fourteen, that kind of figure up until the, the war in Ukraine, and then a hundred thousand in the space of a year, little over a year, you know, you, you cannot possibly deny the fact that that was bound to put a strain. And nobody's saying they shouldn't result. be here. Or they no, should go indeed. Home or 
ranking no, absolutely not. Nobody's saying, nobody's yeah. saying that. Although I think that there is obviously there's a bit of a rethink in terms of the um, the package that's being offered to, to Ukrainians, and there is going to be legislation on that in the next um, month. I think by the end of next month, I think they expect to have that new those new you, provisions in place. But the you picked this I mean, piece in the Sunday Times: empty offices reviewed to yeah. host refugees by Claire Scott. Yeah, I, I mean offices, um, disused hotels, where it's basically warehousing people. You know, you've got to be able to accommodate people. And, and I mean, I, I can understand the concerns of, of local communities where you have 50 individuals, whether they're males or families or whatever, arriving into a small community that is already under stress in terms of um, GP provision, schools and whatever, and, and that there's no accommodation or en- em- employment for these people in, in, in the area. They can understand the, the, the reasons that people are concerned and that does need to be addressed. But at the same time, warehousing people in, 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 in empty offices is not a humane or dignified way to accommodate people either. We need to, as, as, as Aideen said, we need to accept this is a conversation we should have had before now. If, if they are put into offices, Aideen, in an urban setting, is an urban setting better when you look at what's going on down in smaller towns in rural Ireland and stuff? Are, they, are, are people more easily kind of absorbed into a huge population like Dublin? Yes, and I think Brenda makes a good point. You know, in terms of the 100,000 Ukrainians, um, in essence, you know, it's a mystery to me, honestly, and, uh, you know, how we have achieved this. You know, it is, it is an incredible feat that Ireland, within such a short space of time, has found accommodation for 100,000 Ukrainians. Um, but it, the price of that is that it has absorbed, you know, a lot of the potential spare capacity that you would have uh, otherwise. Um, I do think urban centres are a better solution for displaced migrants for numbers of reasons. Access to services, uh, transport, support groups. Um, a lot of incoming migrants, for example, will have major issues around post-traumatic stress disorder. So the provisions of services are really critical to them. And yes, I, I do think urban settings in, in, that, in that regard do provide a better option. Jack, on another note then, uh, you picked a piece in the Irish Mail on Sunday by Debbie McCann, John yes. Brown and John Lee. One year, 13 arsons, zero arrests. Yeah, now we do hear uh, constantly arson is a very serious crime. These people will be brought, brought to justice. Yeah, this piece really gets the, the kernel of something that has kind of been bugging me a little bit as well, because it opens up with um, just some stuff that they've taken from social media, you know, uh, stuff about burning people out, really, you know, like calling for calling for people to be burned out, explicit. Mm. And they say identifiable people, you know, saying things like, uh, you know, putting up fire emojis yeah. and saying that could be terrible if something bad happened here, if there was a faulty Xmas light or something like that. And, you know, it just is making the point that this kind of discourse online seems to be allowed and, you know, there seems to be no interest in policing it. There seems to be no interest in tackling what, to my mind, would seem to be incitement. And then at an even more serious end of the scale, it details uh, 13 arson attacks. And I think if you go back further, you'd find more arson attacks on direct provision centres that occurred before the current phase in, in, in migration trends that we're seeing. And nobody arrested, you know. And this idea that the... That the state, the the Garda, the government just kind of seems incapable or unwilling uh, to act in the face of what is quite clearly, to my mind, you know, approaching something like a subversive threat, you know. Um, where is the policing response to this, I think people are saying. And I think that that is going to become part of this. Because if you have a sense that, you know, the far right, um, small that they may be, and without electoral representation, if they can act with impunity, and if that kind of gains ground and momentum, then I think that that is another damaging fold. So it's just, a, it's, a, it's an we interesting piece that, that pulls all that together. Brenda, can't we? Yeah, but also I was just going to say like, that... Uh, like people are egging other people on, on, on their phones to burn down places and then places are being burned down. I know. And I mean, I think there, there is some, there's a lot of merit to what the teacher said recently that this is going to end in a fatality because there's going to be somebody in some of these buildings when they are set alight. But I mean, I know that, I, I think it was the, 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 the attack on the Ross Lake House Hotel that the Guardi said they knew that was a local. So the, the perception that this is a small band of, of, of uh, far right who are travelling around the country and, 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 you know, responsible for these attacks, not necessarily the case. 
It can be both. They may be local, but, but can, I mean, they can. can yeah, yeah, of course yeah. they can. But I mean, I think the general perception is that we're talking about this hardcore of sort of mobile far right agitators. Well, I, 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 I think, I think that that hardcore probably does exist. Well, they and, do. And, and they they're, quite, they're quite expert at but accelerating the certain ones. messages, but they're not the yeah, only ones. And I, think, and I think that, you know, when you talk to, certainly talking to TDs across the, the back end of last year and into this year, and people who are involved in sourcing accommodation on the ground, they do say that, you know, the people who are turning up to the protests, like they're not, it, it would be comforting to think it's all outsiders, but it's mm, not, so, you know, that yeah. that these these kind of scepticisms and concerns have gone mainstream and that there is a very kind of capable core of people on the far right who are able to kind of, you know, take advantage of that and, and move it in some very, very unsavory direction. Yeah. But shouldn't you that see, make uh, it easier to, 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 to detect then yes, and police? It should, and that, that's it what makes it... Kind of yeah, that there's been it, no arrests. Interesting what Jack says there, Donica, just briefly about how quickly certain tropes and conversations have been mainstreamed, isn't it? Things that were completely unacceptable are kind of being bandied around much more casually now. That's that's true. And that's partly due to, as I was saying earlier, social media. And that's also partly due to artificial intelligence, which is in all the papers as well. Yeah, today. we'll come back, we'll come to, come that. back to that. Yeah. Um, Aideen, just to end on a more uh, hopeful note, uh, you were reading uh, Ard Lohanlin, who was in with us yesterday um, in the Mirror today. And you think this has a, he, what he was talking about has a kind of a bearing here? Yeah, no, I, I do think a lot of the, the whole narrative and discourse around migration, it does kind of go to the heart of the whole idea of Irishness, you know, and um, who we are, what we are. And and I think that's a sort of a, a kind of a discussion that, that really needs to, to kind of happen. And I thought Ardell's piece yesterday on your programme, Brandon, was, was super, you know, and, um, um, you know, his documentary goes out on, on Monday. Mm. And uh, I think it's something that a lot of Irish people would find fascinating because for most people who regard themselves as Irish, we all kind of grew up, whether we were Catholics or whether we weren't, with the influence of the Catholic Church and, and priests. And um, I think Ardell's kind of, you know, conclusions that they had a really important role to play. And then the question arises, you know, who plays that role, you know, into the future? It may not have to be played by a celibate male priest, yeah. but there is something there, you know, kind, that, that a kind does of a need moral leadership in, in yeah, a moral leadership. And, yeah. and, you know, you do have to ask when it comes to migration, you know, in, in your local town, in your local village, you know, where is the moral leadership on this? You know, I mean, I think one of the most, you know, potentially discomforting things that I'm seeing is. Uh, local politicians playing one side or the other, depending on which bit suits them or doesn't suit them. And, you know, you do need you do need something that's above that to some extent that does provide some community moral leadership. But then you do see at times of great tragedy or distress, say you, the, 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 the incidents in, in, in Donegal or, or the murder of someone like the Ashley Murphy, that, that it is to the local priest mm. that yeah. people turn, it's to the, to the church. And of course, I think it's something like 70% of the population still identify as Catholics. So, I mean, they do have, a, a, a still have a, a, a moral focus, a moral leadership in, in communities. Funny, I'm open to correction here, but I haven't heard that many priests coming out in communities I, I, around Ireland no, and talking about, um, no. about, about the, the migration Which issue. they could do, anyway. because they do have that authority still, I think, in a lot of communities. Especially in times, yeah, maybe that's worth we'd like. Yeah, but look, maybe maybe they are they are doing. (coughs) Um, Okay, uh, we're going to take a break. So, um, Brenda Power, columnist at the Daily Mail and Sunday Times, Donico back on, a professor of international relations at the School of Law and Government in DCU, Jack Organ Jones of the Irish Times, and Aideen Hayden, housing expert and former chair of Threshold, staying with us. We don't talk as much as we, we do sometimes about housing, but there are interesting housing stories around today. Uh, Brenda, the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday, John Drennan has this story uh, about uh, housing targets increasing and the Construction Industry Federation saying we could build 60,000. That's right, yeah. I, I mean, I, we've always been told that, that, that the manpower and that the, the, the ability is not there, at least that was my impression, to, to meet the sort of uh, requirements, that, to meet the targets that we need. But here you have the CIF uh, saying that they could build 60,000. There's industry capacity for 60,000 homes a year, whereas the government's uh, target is, is 38 and maybe increased by 5,000. So, I mean, that, that the, the only 
only solution to the housing problem is to build more houses. So, I mean, the reason why there is any reservation about expanding that or, or being more ambitious about that doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. To yeah. Me. Aideen, as a housing expert now, I was reading a, a youngish guy in one of the papers yesterday, uh, one of the English papers, but he was making the point that if we had cost of living problems in, uh, in the last few years, not just Ireland, elsewhere, and all the stops were pulled out for uh, middle-aged people and for everyone to kind of, you know, make this okay for them. The, everything was thrown at it. But still, this situation is allowed to go on where there is a whole generation there missing out on all the milestones, all the kind of aspirations that we, you know, grew up with and everything. But that, in some ways, everything is not being thrown at that. Look, I mean, I think one of the the worst outcomes of the last, you know, the global financial crisis, and I think it's important to realise it's not just here. Like it it is by no means not just here. Yeah. People talk about Berlin and Vienna as though there were some sort of utopias. They actually have major housing issues as well. Um, You know, the whole uh, lack of access to home ownership, rising rents is an international phenomenon, particularly in the Western world. Um, I also think it's one of the the big issues that's capable of completely undermining our society. I mean, one of the issues that's really, really obvious and clear are the number of older people who are going into renting. I mean, I'm personally aware of people who were in, say, their early 30s in 2008. And we're nearly 20 years down that track. They're still renting. They have no chance or little or no chance of ever owning their own homes. They'll be renting potentially for the rest of their lives. And that is something that Irish society, I mean, when we talk about immigration, for example, these are some of the angers that are underneath there. They will have little or no chance of owning their own home without a massive state intervention. That's the, that's the bottom line. And we are facing... Uh, and, and like the government would say they are conducting a massive state intervention. Yes, I mean, you more can look money at the being spent than at, ever before, more houses being built than there have been in decades. You can look decades. at the figures and you can say we're throwing money at the problem. And actually we are. But it just isn't enough. And, you know, we are going to have to do a rethink. I mean, I would like to think the Commission on Housing will come out with something very exciting, but, you know, we'll just have to wait and hold our breaths. I I think we need to be looking at 20 and 30 years ahead in terms of housing. But just going back to the issue itself about the 60,000. Yeah. In 2008, we delivered over 86,000 units of housing in Ireland. It was more than was delivered in England, for example. At the same time, we had a major affordability crisis in housing in Ireland in 2008. Simply throwing supply at the problem does not actually answer the problem. You have to make sure that it's housing where it's needed and for the people for whom it's needed. Um, I'm glad to see the Construction Industry Federation saying that they can rise up from 30 to 60,000. Personally, I'd like to see that 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 challenged a little bit more. They say at the same time, planning is an issue. Financing is an issue. So, you know, planning and financing definitely are issues like there's no question or doubt about that. But I also think capacity in the sector is, is a problem. I, I would personally say that another issue which is very rarely discussed is we have a density strategy in Ireland that requires in urban areas to go high or go home. And that in itself, when you start going to 12 and 14 stories, limits the amount of construction companies that can actually talent, challenge, that can actually deliver that kind of construction. Okay, yeah. It's and challenging it, and it to do it. And it seems to make, the, paradoxically, I think for some people, it makes things very expensive the more Extremely. you go up as well. Like, people yeah. find this hard to believe. You think because your patch of land is the size of X and you build 12 stories on top of it, it ought to be cheaper. It's actually more expensive. And believe it or not, it was more expensive right back as far as the 30s, the 40s and the 50s. You know, so some of the apartment blocks we have in Dublin uh, would never have been built if we'd taken the cost-based okay. perspective. And of course, people would say yeah. there are other ways of doing density there are other ways as of well, doing that things. everyone doesn't need so giant I th- I think gardens, the issue is, you know, yeah. Do we need 60,000 units a year? We absolutely do. It's going to be very challenging, in my opinion, as to how we deliver it. I think we need to start looking far more at new methods of construction. We need to take an axe to the planning system, quite frankly. Well, and we need to be looking big, at financing. You the know. biggest piece of legislation ever kind of thing. They, they, it's, we keep hearing how many pages it is and everything. Yeah, but no, exactly. To think that it's, but, you know, Jack, is this coming back into focus again? No, kind of, I went off the hosing ball a little bit media political wise for a while, didn't it? 
Yeah, but I mean, it's it, it's the ever-present for people. And it's the root like, of I mean, everything, really. The, yeah, it is. Like, if you were to look at one policy problem that expresses the, the kind of political change or the political challenge of this current era, it's housing, undoubtedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you look at the polling, when people are asked, you know, what are you most concerned about? Um, it's worth noting that immigration is shooting up, but what's always at the top? Housing. Uh, and housing is the kind of political water that we swim in. Um like, I think that the problem facing the government now is that we're probably 80% of the way through this government. It's done 80% of the things that it's going to do. And uh, despite a vast array of schemes with various acronyms or Irish names attached to them, like housing and accessibility and affordability is something that people and voters kind of instinctively feel. And I don't think they will have felt the change that would be necessary to convince them that this government's housing programme is working and getting results. So I think okay. that unless there is a, what would be at this stage a fairly unlikely reversal in affordability and access trends in the next what, you know year, uh, maybe even less, then I think that they'll be going to the going to the the polls um, with their backs to the wall on the housing question. Are saying that we're five at, we're at a turning you. point, we're at a tipping we, point. We, yeah, and, and, and that'll be thrown yeah. back at them. The Tanishta has said that several times, as has the Minister for Housing. We have turned the corner on housing. I think the fact of the matter is that that's not what people up and down the country feel, particularly those who are trying to, to enter the housing market, yeah. either as owners. Brenda, or you right. know this yourself. Like The norm for uh, people in their 20s now is living at is home really with their parents, home. is yeah, it? More it is. So than, yeah, it is. Yeah. Myself. But um, no, I was just going to say that you cannot disentangle the housing issue from the immigration Absolutely. issue because that is used by an awful lot of the far-right agitators to to, to, to kind of inflame resentment against the housing of, of refugees. We're saying, well, well look, look at our own. People who, I, I, I'm pretty sure, wouldn't have been the slightest bit concerned about the homeless people if this issue hadn't arisen. And Suddenly and they're and using and them as, as, as uh, a sort of to weaponise the, the housing issue. And it's worth pointing out, it's worth pointing out that, 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 you know, refugees, asylum seekers are not housed in the private rental sector, you know. No, they're so not. They, so they are. That is an important yeah. issue. Donica. No, yeah, no, just just on that, I mean, uh, to reinforce what Jack is saying, I mean, there's an article there by uh, John Mooney in the Sunday Times, and uh, one of the things he highlights is that the vast majority of people who come to Ireland come here legally. This is it's not often perceived thus. Yes. Uh, the, the bigger number, the greater number are returning Irish citizens. Mm-hmm. After that, you have EU citizens who have a perfect mm-hmm. right to be here. And uh, then you have UK citizens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, as was pointed out by Brenda and others, I mean, that it's, it, the Ukrainian migration, which was... Handled unexpectedly and I think very well, as Aideen was saying. I mean, like it was. Well, no, a lot of people would say they, 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 the government, 200,000 was the figure talked about at the time. A lot of people would say the government was very slow getting its act yeah, together. It wouldn't be the first we, time that there was a gap a between years the government's in, aspirations yeah. and their delivery. But considering that they weren't expecting it, considering mm. we already had a housing crisis, um, they, 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 they did, you know, step up to the to the plate in that respect. But it is important to, to, to underline that, that, you know, the number of people we're talking about who enter and look for political asylum, for example, is. 13,000. It's, 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 it's a relatively small number of people on a regular basis. Um, and just on the on the issue of, of, of housing as a salient election issue and, and our capacity, just we're pointing out that, you know, in, in poorer times, and I know in, in times in the past is a different country in many respects, but like in the 1930s and the 1970s, there were huge uh, housing programmes when we had far less resources. So it's always been somewhat of a mystery why with more resources uh, we can't do more. Could I just make one point there, Brendan? I think yeah. it's important. Housing is not a tap you can turn on and off very easily. There's about a five year lead in time from the beginning of a housing project to its delivery. So in actual fact, the government are turning the corner if you actually look at planning applications and so on. Unfortunately, from the government's perspective, the party that will benefit most from it is the party that will next be in government rather than because as Jack says, that's when that's when people will start yeah. to feel it in yeah. their bones. Okay. Um, well, just one thing I was going to say, Brenda, when you consider that we have taken in 100,000 uh, Ukrainian refugees in the past two years, that's almost 10 years capacity mm. for international protection applicants. That we, we, we honestly would not have, I do not believe we would have the sort of right-wing agitation that we see now if it wasn't for that completely unexpected and entirely justified yeah. influx. Yeah, okay. Now, um, the referendum. Uh, Donica and Aideen, you've both picked Brenda's piece in the Sunday Times today. So, uh, Brenda, do you want to tell us first? 
set out your stall? Well, um, I, I am absolutely opposed to the idea of, of uh, altering Article 41.2 on the grounds of gesture politics and virtue signalling and nothing more substantial behind it than that. The reality is this is not a, a, a provision of the Constitution that ever enslaved women or ever oppressed women. And that has been established by, actually it was um, uh, Chief Justice uh, Susan Denham, in the Supreme Court who said this this was never any, a, anything more than an aspirational provision but B, what it did was acknowledge that the, the, the bulk of the work in the home, the bulk of the work in childcare and family care is done by women. That remains the reality. Changing the constitution to take out all references to women and put in word salads about durable relationships and people who care for each other on the basis of their family relationships does not do anything to alter the fact that the bulk of the domestic work, the bulk of domestic duties is still done by women and working women put in something like 20 hours a week extra into the home and to change this without changing that reality is simply disingenuous. Dornica? Well, gesture politics, I think gestures can be important, symbols are important. I think for me it reinforces gender stereotypes. I think it's an anachronism. It's a product of the 1930s, which is when the Constitution was written. I mean, Shane Ross has an article there in the Sunday Indo as well saying we should get rid of the Constitution altogether. I, I think more it's time for a new Constitution. I think there's so many things that need to be changed. I mean, you go back to the, the preamble of the Constitution. It starts with, in the name of the most holy trinity, for, from whom all actions for both men and states must be referred. Does that reflect a 21st century Listen, republic. If we, but if we started writing a new one now, can you imagine the holy war over every word in it? Well, Aideen, you, you disagree with Brenda's every piece. Word of this yeah, no, well. I do, actually. I had the pleasure of sitting on the Constitutional Convention, um, which discussed this oh, yeah, particular okay. constitutional proposal and made a recommendation for change. And, you know, at the time, it was a it was a very interesting debate. I mean, I personally would have been against that provision in the Constitution from, you know, from my times as a student. And I think there is a widespread uh, perception out there um, that it is. Uh, it does stereotype women and it does typecast them um, in terms of their role in the home uh, without undermining that role in the home, I might say. But I think what is important is that we have to recognise that Irish society has changed. The nature of families has changed. We have um, enshrined same-sex marriage into our constitution. We have different family structures now, single-parent families, uh, families where, you know, you have, you know, blended relationships. And also, I think, the whole issue of caring um, particularly as we live in an older society where we are more and more engaged in looking after older members of our, our families. That, and that involves, to the same extent uh, that it involves women, I think to a large extent it involves men as well. So I do think it, it is very... Um, it's gender orientated and I don't believe that's the way we should go forward as a society. But it is but the reality though and I mean 90% no, but, of the people but, who told but Brenda, the, the census is it going to be the reality? The and the importance of it caring is, it's should not the strive for to a support. Lot of people. It's not the reality for a lot of people and I think that needs to be recognised. It's the reality for 90% of the people who told the last census in 2022 that they are the ones at home caring for the family there is were n- women. Are we taking in general, no, in general Nadia, what you say about the importance of caring from people. Well, strive to support, strive to support the provision of care. Anyone who's in a family care situation, anyone Women, looking after um, disabled family members exactly. or anything will say strive to support isn't going to butter any parsnips. Well, listen, no, no more how, many parsnips how many parsnips has the existing provision um, buttered? I would argue no. none. No, no. The existing okay. provision no. in the Constitution has buttered no parsnips. I would rather see the provision taken out completely. If we, if, we, if, we do not go, if we yeah. do not go if we do not go down the road of replacing it I mean what's being proposed here is the state recognises the provision of care by members of a family yeah. to one another by reason of the bonds that exist between them now I think that more better it more clearly represents what happens in an Irish family today than this stereotypical woman at home you know, I mean, I have, I have absolutely no issue with women, women are the at home. They should be supported. Doing the bulk but shows the and, and I, have, I have a concern, and I, I mentioned in the piece as well, about this rush to remove the word woman from all state documents. If you look at documents produced by the Department of Public Expenditure, if you look at documents produced by the Department of Health, they all have a caveat saying we are using the word woman as shorthand for people who identify as women or people who don't identify as women but share women's biology. I don't come under either of those categories. I do not believe woman is an identity. And I am suspicious and, and find it sinister that there is such a rush to remove the words woman and mother from the Constitution and from state documents generally. 
Jack, where are the politicians at with this one? Is it turning into more of a hot potato than they expected it might? Yes, short answer. And, and where are they? I think they're on something approaching a sticky wicket, to be honest. So what's been interesting over the last week or so, as the kind of political system has reawakened itself after its Christmas slumber, has been the, the majority of the commentary on this or the majority of the op-eds on it have been calling for a no, Brenda's included. And I think that there is a there is an absence of a kind of coherent civil society mobilization on the side of, of, of people who might advocate for a yes vote. And I think that the reasons for that are kind of complex, but basically that the, the wording that was provided by the government received a fairly lukewarm reaction from some of the civil society groups. Um, and layered on top of that is the fact that this is this is a complex issue. So the, the idea of removing the language around a woman's place in the home is, is, is broadly easily understood but a lot of the issues that we're talking about here today are quite involved you get in the weeds you know like and and a lot of people I think won't be you know interested in following the ins and outs of this particular debate and that all added to the, the, the kind of the universal truth of referendums, which is that people use them to give governments a bit of a kicking, leads me to believe that they could be uh, left out on the ledge here a little bit on this one. Um, but, you know, when you take a step back... Or, from it, or it develops into a massive culture war for the next well, this while. Is, because let's face it, we can have a culture war over anything these days. This is prime for... And you like, see, so and you see, and that particularly... In, 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 we're in the weeds a little bit, but this idea of a durable relationship, which is the language in there, and a lot of people are questioning what a durable relationship is. Yeah. Okay. The government has said they basically allowed that to be litigated. But like, you know, these are the kind of things that can kind of be the, the blue touch paper in referendum campaigns. I think that's what you're okay. also saying okay. too, that the, the say, terms, as Michael McDougall pointed out during the week as well, the terms like durable relationship is going to make a lot of money for constant Institutional okay. lawyers going forward. Okay. Um, Donica, um, would you just catch us up a bit on uh, your view, and this is your area of expertise, on uh, where we're at uh, vis-a-vis Israel, Gaza, and and now uh, Yemen and, and the Houthis? Yeah, sure. It's uh, it's covered in, in, in many of the papers. Um, there have been US and UK airstrikes um, against, you know, targets in, in Yemen. And this is in response to attacks from Houthi forces. This is kind of a, a, an Iranian-sponsored group in Yemen who have de facto control now for some years. And these attacks uh, have affected a very, you know, um, important uh, route for global trade. 12% of global trade goes through the Red Sea. This has been jeopardized. So they, they've responded, the US and the UK, uh, with, with targeted strikes, it seems, in Yemen. I think, well, there's a few things that come to mind. Uh, one is, um, you know, these airstrikes are about damage to trade. No, no one has been killed, to my knowledge, as a result of these uh, Houthi attacks. I think attacks. the Houthi said five Five of their soldiers were killed or something. Oh, no, sorry. I'm talking about, about the oh, Houthi sorry, attacks. Oh, sorry, about the, the Houthi attacks. attacks. Yeah, yeah. And you think of the fact that almost 24,000 people have been killed in Palestine in the last three months. I mean, the statistics are just, you know, outrageous. And no one's stepping in to stop that. You know, I mean, like, so damage to global trade, we must do something. Global, you know, airstrikes are, are, are the only way. And and um, and this kind of dovetails with a number of other stories that are in the papers today. One, the, the, the huge march that was in Dublin uh, yesterday, that's on the front page of a few uh, newspapers, apparently the biggest one for for uh, for many, many years. Um you know, it's it's highlighting a number of things. This case um, that's been taken by South Africa uh, to the International Court of Justice in The Hague, um, it's it's very important. Um, it's it's. I mean, we have had genocides in, in in the past that are long forgotten. I mean, who remembers the the Cherkassians, for example? Two million people who lived in uh, around Sochi, which was wiped out by the Russian Empire, completely disappeared. Um, Hitler famously said in 1938, before he embarked in his own genocidal campaign, "Who remembers the Armenians now?" Uh, who were one and a half million uh, killed uh, by the Ottoman Empire in in, in, uh, in 1915. Um, so this case uh, is is symbolically very important. And what's interesting is is that there's been a real strong pushback by some countries, um, the United States uh, in particular, Israel of course, um, about even the, the, the they've been brought to answer about these issues. And, it's, and, and the notion is put forward that genocide is such a heavy and a loaded word that it shouldn't even be discussed when we're talking about this. But think of it this way. I mean, uh, when Leo Varadkar, for example, was in Kosovo during the last couple of days, um, 
the US and, and, and other countries were using the word genocide to describe Serbian aggression and ethnic cleansing during the 1990s. And they stepped in very quickly. They took on the, 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 the Serbs and they created essentially a two-state solution, uh, Serbia and Kosovo, against the wishes of the Serbs. And yet the very same countries are saying now that there's nothing that can be done. Um, 1% at least 1% of the of the Gazan population have been killed in the last three months. I mean, it's it's just unimaginable, the statistics. Uh, you know, 50 mothers every day, you know, children losing their limbs. And, and, and this is... Would you agree there are two parties to this conflict? Not at the moment. No. Not at the moment. I mean, we know we know what triggered this particular phase of the conflict. This is a long-running conflict. Let's let's yeah. we all know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And we know what but right now no, it's completely asymmetrical. It's okay. completely one-sided. At the same t- time though, Donegal, is it not the case that the, that calls for the release of the hostages and I see a, a baby celebrated if he's still alive his first birthday mm-hmm. in captivity that 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 th- those have have become muted in the last while. And and if, if if there's any definition of a war crime, surely it is the taking of civilian hostages and holding them in, in God knows what sort of circumstances indefinitely. And, and and the calls for those and and I do believe that if there were more louder calls and if if, if those hostages were released, there'd be far greater pressure on Israel to to to, to, to Okay. Okay. Look, I think I think we we we've both had your say on that, Donica. Just really briefly, I think uh, like lay people would have thought that by the at the start of this week, not in huge danger of this blowing up into a whole regional conflict. By the end of the week, slightly more danger of it. Um. I, I wouldn't say that necessarily. No, I mean, okay. and, and I say this as somebody who, you know, when we're looking at the Russia um, invasion of Ukraine, there were many moments when people said we're on the verge of a major escalation that could lead to nuclear war, could lead to World War Three. In fact, the Sunday Independent has an editorial just on that topic saying we need to roll back from talk of World War Three. Of course, we know we're not in a good place when you have to say that openly. Um, you know, Joe Biden has mentioned World War Three in his uh, election. You know, Donald Trump has mentioned it as well. I don't think we're we're there. Um, we've had we've had appalling, you know, massacres on a, on a major scale. But um, and I'm going to try and put a slightly um, benign twist on this: is that you know, in terms of of of, of deaths because of, of of wars and whatnot, we're actually not statistically in a worse place than we were in the 1970s. Okay, but that's simply to say that we're still in a really bad place. Okay, Brenda Paradonico back on Jack Organ Jones and Aideen Hayden staying with us, and we're going to take a break. Aideen, there was a. A story there during the week that in one way is kind of a local story and in another way I think people lit on it as a signifier of something and uh, that John Drennan has a piece in the Mail on Sunday today, Shame Lane, uh, and this is about the closure of uh, Harbour Court Lane on the north side of Dublin. Yeah, um, it's it's surprising in that it's it's taken on sort of such legs really and I think that's possibly on foot of what happened in Dublin's inner city and a lot of the dis- discussion that there's been about the inner city itself and what's happened in the post-Covid era. Um, also Conor Skeen has a piece in the Irish Independent uh, basically putting it into a wider perspective saying that you know lane closures are really more about how you know we have too narrow a view of our how we develop our city and our city streets, and he points to some examples in other you know um, cities in Ireland like Galway and Waterford where they've successfully. Um, and sure, listen, don't we all go off on holidays to places to potter around uh, lanes like but where there are all these little shops honest. that you wonder do they ever sell anything? Yeah, but they're there. Like to be honest, yeah. I, I'd have to ask you know really, and I don't I don't mean this in any negative way. To, I'd have to ask Connor, has he ever been down Harbour Court Lane? I mean, it, it's look, come on, a lot of the lanes that are that were under discussion by Dublin I know but City. it's his point not that we should be doing something with Listen, these we, lanes with the, the bottom line of it is look a lot of these lanes they're dark they're damp they're poorly lit they were they were put in originally into the city as quick ways to bring goods mm. to the backs of buildings mm. they weren't meant to be like some of the lanes you're talking about <laughs> Brendan cobbled in, in, yes. in sophisticated <laughs> European cities that's some know, shishi jewellery handmade jewellery shops in there but why, why are we laughing about this like tears, you know, around I'm the place. astonished that you're making a comparison <laughs> with these quaint cobbled lanes in beautiful Italian no, cities no I'm afraid look not. at this dump <laughs> I mean, this is an absolute... But is that, I is that, a, is that a choice that we've... Let it be a dump. You think I, short I of dump, Brendan? I can't see that, that what I'm looking at in, on, I think it's page 20 of today's mail, having any potential 
to be in any way redeemable as as as, as, as a, a thoroughfare, let alone a tourist attraction. It's, a graffiti it's an absolute dump. No, it's right next to the public art. No, I think maybe a trip down Harcourt Lane would be any harder. So hang on, one at a time. Jack, you make an interesting point. So everyone come to Dublin. It's an amazing city. It's so quaint and charming and everything. Come to the National Theatre and everything. And right next to it, we have to shut down a lane. But don't walk down this lane or you'll lose your life. But I think Aideen's point is a good one because this is probably not a kind of, you know, historic medieval street Mm. that has fallen into despair. It's probably a a piece of kind of utilitarian infrastructure at the end of the day. But it is is a shame that the, the only response, it seems, is to close it. You know, like, I mean, it, it does strike me as disappointing that, like, even now, as, we, as after it has been closed, there doesn't seem to be discussion around how can how can it be perhaps revitalised? Like, it is right next to the Abbey Theatre, yeah. one of the, you know, cultural totems of the state. Um, so why isn't there a discussion about, you know, what can be done here? Because uh, the as, appo- as, a, as opposed to As opposed to abandoning it. Or, you know, why is it the way but it Jack, is? do you not think and, you pick and, your and, lanes when you're going to go defensive on lanes? You uh, pick the lane. And actually, I'm not for not, we should stress not just for tourists either, like, but no, for the people no. who live in the in the area and for indeed people. But, who no, but there, 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 there was a concert. There was a concerted effort mm-hmm. on policy and a strategy around Capel Street as well. Mm-hmm. And Capel Street probably had a lot more going for it than than Harbour Court, but Capel Street was uh, pedestrianised, and you know, it's 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 really become something quite interesting. So, the idea that you can have a kind of street by street strategy within Dublin city centre, and particularly within areas of the city centre that are particularly deprived and have particular problems like the northeast inner city is not it's it's not that radical you know maybe you do need to go street by street and think about this rather than rather than closing you know let's see what can be done here but the cable street regeneration was basically a product of covert because of all the, the restaurants and, and, and bars that set their stalls up out on the street. And, and, and but I suppose it shows it can be done. It, shows, you, it can be done, you, yeah. There's, but a, there's, a, there's a conversation within that piece, I think, about the directly elected directly mayor, Brendan. Mayor, yeah, a, a, a directly elected mayor, which, I mean, there, there's going to be a directly elected mayor in Limerick uh, this year because a plebiscite to, to, to uh, approve the election was passed, narrowly passed, 54%, but they're going to have a directly elected mayor. The idea is that if you have a directly elected mayor, you have somebody with whom the book stops when it comes to policing, when it comes to cleaning, when it comes to transport in the city. And we don't have anybody, an elected individual, to take that responsibility. No, but I do think Dornica, I what do you reckon, as, in, as a kind of a, an oh, international yeah. citizen, Indiv- and you, you, know, you travel mm. a lot and you've lived in various places, is there a kind of a, is there a deficit there that we don't have an elected mayor of Dublin who is minding the city? And a SAR or whatever yeah. they yeah, there's certainly a lack of strategic thinking, I feel, I mean, like about how we develop the city. It seems to be very ad hoc, very incremental, no bigger vision. I mean, like I've lived in cities which, again, to echo something I said earlier, far less well resourced. And they have much better, you know, um, systems like, for, for example, like parks, boulevards, cultural centres. We desperately need some kind of a cultural centre in Dublin that's not Temple Bar, you know, something that you can have, you know, theatres and movie things, you know. But yeah. and also you know what? It often happens organically, though. You'd wonder, like, if, you know, if certain areas become run down cheap enough for artists young people to start little businesses in there and stuff like that, will it develop organically? But I suppose you do have to kind of uh, nurture that kind of thing, don't you? Um, Before we finish up, Jack, you wanted to talk about uh, the new columnist with the uh, Mail on Sunday today, Brian Tuberty. Ryan Tuberty, yeah. I spent a lot more time last year thinking about and writing about Ryan Tuberty than I would have anticipated this time last year. So uh, I was interested you're, to read... showbiz correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was interested to read his, his debut London Diary in the Mail on Sunday. Um, only obliquely kind of, you know, makes reference to, to the great unpleasantness of last year. But um, I found myself enjoying it just <laughs> despite myself. Like, it's it's kind of... In, in some parts, it's kind of self-indulgent. There's a lot of what you'd expect around brand Tuberty, you know, the kind of self-styled nerdy stuff, you know, going to the V&A and going to the Church of War rooms. And, you know, some of the, some, some of the writing's a little on the nose, kind of very getting into the Pogues thing, talking about a rainy day in Kilburn. But, um, you look, it's, it's, it's an interesting piece and it gets into him getting the, the gig with, with Virgin, uh, you know, going with Chris Evans and then getting approached by the managing director. Um, but some parts of it are, are kind of very accidental partridge as well, talking about Eamon Holmes giving his number after after a shindig in London. Brenda, so. are you going to be able to compete with this as a fellow columnist <laughs> in, the, in, in the mail? Yeah, I'm yeah, impressed. There's a lot of writing involved. I would have thought celebrity celebrity columns usually tend it's to be, be quite short. It's going to be shorter next week, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, did you not get to the end? Short. It said at the end it'll be, it won't be this uh, long every I week. I did. <laughs> I did. Um, 
I, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. It's, it's written in his jaunty, very recognisable style. And I, I do think he's right. I think he's right to say people would be interested to, to, to hear from him. And he's, he be, would be a good chronicler of, uh, of modern life in London for an Irish expat. Absolutely. Brenda Power, columnist at the Irish Daily Mail and the Sunday Times. Donegal back on Professor of International Relations at the School of Law and Government in DCU. Jack Horgan-Jones, political correspondent with the Irish Times and Aideen Hayden, housing expert and former chair of Threshold. Thank you all very much. And now it's just coming up to 12 noon and we will go to the newsroom and Kate Egan.